You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. So we're continuing a series that we started last weekend on January 1st. Uh, that I'm leaving untitled. I just couldn't find a cool title for my series on faith. It's a six-part series, so it's untitled. I, um, at one point, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to call it Faithing Forward. And then I was like, that is so stupid. We're just not, I'm just not going to do that. So I am having struggles with titles right now. Um, but today's going to be part two, and we're just going to call it what it is. Faith, Doubt, and Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Uh, we, we started this last week. And if you weren't here, if you haven't watched the stream or listened to the podcast, this sermon in particular, I mean, I love it when people go back and listen to the sermons they miss, but this one in particular, for the basis of this series, I really want you to go back and either watch or listen uh, to that sermon called Wrestling with God. I think there's some very key thoughts, and it was a sermon that seemed to connect and resonate with even more people than usual. Uh, A lot of people felt like, man, this really spoke to me, and I'm so grateful occasionally when those sermons do hit home for for a good portion of people. So we're building on that foundation. Title of the sermon, Faith, Doubt, and Jesus. And in just a moment, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in uh, James chapter 1. And this particular passage we're going to look at I believe is one of the most misunderstood, misconstrued, misapplied passages in the entire Bible. I would probably rank it in the top 10 most misunderstood passages in the Bible. And in a few moments, I'll show you what I do think James is trying to tell us. I'll give you what I think is the healthiest interpretation and the most accurate interpretation of what James is trying to say. But first, I need to show you Uh, the flawed way that people interpret this and the kind of problems it can create in people's lives. So let's look at this passage. Then we're going to pause and pray, just kind of like orientate our hearts to hear from the Lord. And then we'll jump into it. James 1, verses 6 through 8. James says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded and unstable in all they do. Let's pray. God, I thank You for those that have gathered here, these brothers and sisters, not only in the room, but online as well, or listening by some other means. And I believe this is a very important, weighty, valuable word that you want to give us. And may we pay attention to how we hear. We're not gathered to just listen to a guy talk. There's something spiritual, supernatural happening in this time together because you're involved. And as an act of worship, we humble ourselves before your word. We do our best to cast aside any distracting thoughts or or anything that crops into our mind that would compete for our attention. And we, we, we seek to hear from you. Speak to us, Lord. And may your kingdom be established in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So James says that we're supposed to ask God, and when we ask that we shouldn't doubt, we should have no doubt whatsoever. And when we ask God without doubting, then we'll receive what we're asking for. But if we ask God and we do have doubts, well, we're not going to receive anything. Not going to receive anything if you have doubts. This passage, along with several others like it in the New Testament, lays at the foundation of what I think is the source of a major struggle for a lot of people. And it's the idea that faith is being psychologically certain of something. That as I'm praying for something, the more convinced I am it's going to happen, the more psychologically certain I am of the outcome, and the less doubt that I have, the more faith I have. Therefore, the more likely I'll receive the outcome I'm praying for. It's, I think, an unbiblical model of faith. A very unhealthy, harmful model of faith. But it is, unfortunately, perhaps the most common model of faith that most evangelical Christians have. And just to give you a couple extremes of how this can play out in people's lives, I've known people in my background, I've known people who absolutely refuse to ever go to the hospital or see a doctor of any kind. Because in their minds, that would show a lack of faith that Jesus is going to heal you, at least supernaturally. And so they will never go to a doctor because for them, that, that they see that as an expression of doubt. And you can see why somebody would behave that way if this is their understanding of James 1 and their understanding of what faith is. It follows if that's what it is. I've known people who take it a step further and they'll say that not only must you believe and have no doubt that God's going to answer your prayer, you must believe and have no doubt that God has already answered your prayer. You've just got to confess it and claim it and step into it as if it's already true and already happened. So these are people that will walk around telling you, I am healed in Jesus' name. Even though the doctor's telling them there's still cancer there. Because they're thinking, why would I give the evidence of cancer more authority than the Word of God? And they think that the Word of God is telling them that they're already healed. I know of a guy who, um, when he was in college, he had uh, really thick Coke bottle glasses. He was legally blind. Blind as a bat without his Coke bottle glasses. And he had to have them on. But he had come under this teaching in college at his church somewhere that taught him that this is what faith is. And you've got to believe and receive without any doubt that God's already answered your prayer and just begin walking in it. So he, he actually, for like three months, took his glasses off and started walking around telling people, I can see. I am healed in Jesus' name. And during that span of time, he got in like two car accidents, flunked every test that he took because he couldn't read the test, couldn't read the books that the tests were based on. But all the while, he's telling people, I can see. I'm healed in Jesus' name. Crash. It was like Mr. Magoo driving around, <laughs> crashing into everything. But you can see why a person would come to this conclusion if this is their understanding of James 1. Something is off with this kind of mentality. For one thing, when I read the Gospels, I notice Jesus never asked anybody to fake it like that. Never. Remember, he's praying for a blind man one occasion, and, and he, he prays for him, and then after he prays, he asks the man, can you see? He doesn't say, confess that you can see. He just says, can you see? 
And the guy's very honest, and he says, kind of, like, sort of. It's definitely better, but, and, and I could see people, but they look like trees walking around. And Jesus doesn't say, come on, man, where's your faith? You just got to confess it. No, he says, let's go back to it. Let's pray again. Jesus never asks us to pretend. He never expects us to play psychological gimmicks with our own brains. Something is off with that interpretation of this passage. I mean, think about it. If this is true, that if I ask God for anything without doubting, I'm going to receive. Does that mean if one of you right now just took a moment and you prayed a prayer right now, and you said, God, I am praying and I am believing that by midnight tonight, North Korea will become a democracy. And you pray that prayer with absolute certainty. You have no doubt whatsoever. You know it's going to happen. Does that mean that it's going to happen? That it has to happen? Does God just take the leaders of North Korea and turn them into robots? Just because you prayed a prayer that was certain of something? See, there are other variables in that equation. Something's off with that interpretation. Something else has to be going on. And then what about a scenario like this? Let's say that there's someone over here on this side of the church. We're going to call him Bill. And I'm choosing random names, not talking about anybody here. But we, we have Bill over here on this side of the stage or, or, or church. And Bill's single. And he's got his eye on a woman named Jane. So you got Bill and Jane. And Bill's over here and he's praying. And he's believing. And he's saying, God, I am praying and I'm believing that Jane will become my wife. That you will cause it to where Jane's heart turns towards me and, and we're going to be married and, and live happily ever after forever. And Bill prays that prayer with absolute certainty, no doubt whatsoever. He's positive God's going to make it to where Jane becomes his wife. And over here on this side of the platform is poor Jane. And Jane's also praying. And she's believing God. But she's praying and believing with no doubt, with absolute certainty whatsoever, she's praying and believing for God to protect her from Bill. Because Bill's a stalker. Well, you see, God cannot answer both of these requests and still hold James 1 to be true. James 1's going to have to be falsified for one of them. Let's hope it's falsified for Bill over here. Something else is going on in this passage. Something has to be going on when you see how flimsy this kind of interpretation is. But it's, it's the foundation of this model of faith, that faith is being certain. The more certain, the more convinced, the less doubt I have, the more faith I have. And it may look like this. Maybe we'll put this image up for a few moments to represent this model of faith. So this is what I might call a faithometer. All right, and we're going to leave it up for a few minutes but this is the faithometer, and so uh, maybe this represents the concept that I'm talking about. And people who have this model of faith, I don't mean that they really believe there's a faithometer, but, but this represents the concept. So, so it might, maybe it works like this. The more certain I can make myself, the more convinced I am, the less doubt I have, the more that faithometer cranks up into the green, and it leans, it leans to, to your right. But the less certain I am, and the more doubt I have, well, the faithometer leans more to your left. And, and see, if this is how we think about it, then we reduce God to being sort of like this heavenly meter maid. And God, you know, his responsibility is just go around checking everybody's faithometer level. How, how are you doing today, you know? 
And, and, and we got to wonder, you know, uh, how much faith, quote unquote, how much faith do I got to crank up in order to be saved? You know, 51%, is that, is that enough to cut it? Or maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's like 65%. Or maybe it's 80, 85%. Or God forbid, maybe it's even 100%. But we don't know. We're not even told. We're not even given access to our own faithometer to even see where our faith level is at. But there's got to be some type of requisite level we've got to crank it up to. Or maybe perhaps it works something like this. Maybe in order to get saved, we have to crank up that faithometer to 51%. But if I want to get healed of something, well, now i got to boost it up to like 70%. And if I can crank it up all the way to like 95%, we see that's when I get the Lamborghini I've been praying for. And if I can get it all the way to 100%, well, that's when you can now change the politics of North Korea. Does it work like that? But then what about this? What if on Sunday afternoon, after I walk out of Village Church, my faithometer is at 51%, but Monday morning when I have to drive to work, it, it lowers to 49%, and then I get in a car accident and die? Well, man, that's a terrible scenario, because now I don't qualify. You see, something, I, I hope you can see by now, I'm giving you a colorful critique of this, but I hope you can see how faulty this kind of thinking is. And what it, it ends up doing is it turns us into the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz. Like, we're, we're like, I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. And we think, if, if I could just make myself certain enough, if I could just talk myself into enough and get free from doubt, then I'll be saved or then I'll get healed of this. But if I can't crank up that faithometer enough, then I'm not going to get healed. So you can hopefully start to see how this can really begin to wreak havoc in people's lives. Here's something else to think about. People who really believe this, that faith is about psychologically certain. Well, well, the logical conclusion of that is that all doubt must be avoided. All doubt must be evil. It must be a sin to doubt. It must be wrong to doubt. And so when people have this kind of mentality, they tend to avoid all doubt like the plague. And they tend to quarantine themselves from anyone or anything that could possibly cause them to doubt their precious sacred beliefs and assumptions, any of them. And so uh, what a person ends up doing is they say, well, I, I, I should only read authors and books from people who I already agree with on everything. And I should only listen to preachers and teachers who I agree with on everything. And I should only hang out with people who agree with on everything. So we've got a nice little club of people who all hold the same beliefs and we keep each other talked into it and keep ourselves certain and we hold each other accountable to it. And it can be very unpleasant when you come across these kinds of people because they can't risk that faithometer dropping. And, and so anyone who comes along who maybe doesn't agree with them on these things, on any conceivable issue, really, what tends to happen in their mind, because doubt is, a, is something to be avoided, well, well I, I tend to demonize now the people who bring doubt. If doubt's evil, then people who bring doubt is evil, and the more persuasive their arguments are, maybe the more evil they are. And so you can't even have calm, rational intelligent discussions with these kinds of folks because there's too much at stake for them. They can't risk that faithometer dropping. You understand? 
So something, something is off with this mentality, this application of James 1. But listen, James 1 is in the Bible, isn't it? It's in the inspired Word of God. So we can't just ignore it. We've got to deal with it. So let's deal with it. You ready? Or you want me to just let you out right now and just leave you confused? Okay. Well, James says, looking at it again, James says, you've got to ask without doubt, and if you ask without doubt, you'll receive an answer. Otherwise, you're not going to receive anything. What, what do we do with this? There are two things here that are, that are going to be very important. I want you to lock this in. Not just for this passage, but for many like it. Number one, anytime we come upon the passages or the verses of the Bible, we're trying to interpret the Scriptures. Number one, we need to always keep in mind this is a thoroughly Jewish book. And it's written by ancient Jews. And ancient Jewish culture, just like all ancient Near Eastern culture and pretty much all ancient Mediterranean culture in general, they tend to use a lot of hyperbole in their language. What is hyperbole? Hyperbole is when you exaggerate in order to make a point. You tell your child, I've told you a million times to clean your room. You don't mean that literally as if... I've literally told you I've been counting one million times as opposed to 999,999 times. No, you're exaggerating in order to make an emphatic point that you can drive home. The point that you're making is I've told you a lot to clean your room, but you state it in an exaggeratory way. You use hyperbole in order to emphasize it. So we use a certain measure of hyperbole in our language today, but we don't use it nearly as much as the ancient Jewish people did. And we have to be aware of that, that when we're reading the Bible, there, there may be a lot of hyperbole sometimes that we're dealing with. And in a very literalistic culture like ours, if we take hyperbole and apply it literally, it can actually do a lot of damage in our lives. For example, um, one verse that you hear me quote every time I do a child dedication here, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he gets older, he will not depart from it. That verse is a principle that's generally true, that if you raise your kids a certain way, generally speaking, they tend to continue in that direction. But of course, human beings have the freedom to choose their own direction. And it's, it's not meant to be taken as a, a guarantee. And yet I know parents who have taken that verse literally and applied it thinking they had a guarantee from God. And when their child split off in a wayward direction, it absolutely devastated them. What the author is simply saying is it's really important how you raise your kids. But he states it in an emphatic way in order to drive the point home. And so we always need to be aware of that when we handle the scriptures. It helps us to interpret it correctly. And I would just give you this rule of thumb. When you come upon a verse or a passage that sounds really outrageous, it may be the case, not always, but it may be the case that you're dealing with some hyperbole there. Like when Jesus says, uh, you, it, it's better to cut your hand off than enter into hell with two, with two hands. I, I, you know, I, I just... I think that's an obvious example of hyperbole there. Unless anybody here has done that, Okay, or, or do we have anybody who's pried their eyeballs out? Because that's the literal interpretation of that passage. Uh, but I think we understand Jesus' point. There's hyperbole meant to make an emphatic point. Correct? Okay, all right, great. I'm glad we're not one of those churches. So I think a little bit of that's going on with this James passage. But here's the second thing, and this is, 
maybe even more important, and it applies to everything in the Bible. When we read a passage or a verse of Bible, we're trying to interpret it. It's so, 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 so very important that we look at the context of that verse or that passage. Every verse of the Bible is meant to be interpreted within the passage that it's in. Every passage is meant to be interpreted within the book that it's written in. And every book's meant to be interpreted within the entire canon of, of Scripture. Otherwise, it's very easy, and people do this all the time. I can take any verse, strip it out of context, paste it to the wall, and twist it to mean whatever I want it to mean. So we want to honor context. In this passage, if you look at the context and back up actually just one verse before and include verse 5 with the rest of it, it completely changes the meaning of the passage. So let's read it one more time, but this time we're going to include verse 5. So look what it says. If any of you lacks, say it, wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it, meaning wisdom, will be given to you. But when you ask for it, meaning wisdom, you must believe and not doubt. So the author is specifically talking about asking God for wisdom. This is not a blank check. He's not talking about how to change the politics of North Korea. He's not talking about how to ensure someone will become your spouse. He's talking about asking God for wisdom. And, when he, and he says, when you ask God for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt this. That number one, God gives generously. In other words, God wants to give you wisdom. He's not holding out on you. He can't wait to pour out wisdom upon your life. And secondly, you must not doubt that he's a forgiving God. He doesn't find fault. He's not going to allow sin to become, a, your past sin to become a barrier between you and him. In other words, the trust has to be in God's character. James is saying, believe and don't doubt. God loves you. He's for you. He wants to lead and guide your life. He wants to pour out wisdom. He doesn't hold a grudge against you. He's a gracious, merciful God, and he wants the best for you. But James is saying, if you don't trust God's character, if you believe God does have it out for you, if you believe God's not generous and he doesn't want to give you wisdom, then you're going to be like a wave tossed about by the sea. Why? Because you're living without the wisdom of God. You're directionless. You have no bearing. So I hope it's clear that he's talking specifically about wisdom. He's not talking about how to convince yourself of things that you cannot possibly be certain of. What a torturous thing to do to yourself. No, listen, it's, it goes back to what I talked about last week. Faith is covenantal trust. It's a relational commitment, much like marriage. Just yesterday, I did a wedding right here on this platform. A, a bride and a groom walked down, and just right here, they looked into each other's eyes, really nervous, and they did their vows in sickness and in health for richer for poor until death do us part. I do. When you do that, when you say that, you are exercising faith in the biblical sense of the term. Faith is saying, I pledge myself to you, I'm pledging to trust you, and I'm pledging to walk trustworthily before you. When you say that to your spouse, when you say, I do, here's the thing. You cannot be psychologically certain that everything's going to work out just okay. You can't even be psychologically certain that you're going to remain married, at least in the logical sense. You can't be certain. 44% of all marriages today end in divorce. 
So maybe this person has a mean streak you don't know about. Maybe they have a dishonest streak you don't know about. Or perhaps there's even an underlying health issue that neither of you are aware of, but just in a, in a short time, it's going to rear its ugly head and transform the relationship. You don't know. You can't be certain you're going to live happy ever after. Life can throw all kinds of things at you. But you're willing to take the risk. You're saying, I have enough evidence of this person's good character and our compatibility that I'm going to pledge myself to them. I'm going to pledge to trust them and to walk trustworthily before them. It's not about certainty. It's about, do you have enough reason now to commit to this covenant? Faith is a covenantal concept. It doesn't imply certainty. It's rather acting to be trustworthy and to trust in spite of the fact that you're not certain. And this applies to everything in life. Everything in life involves some measure of risk. When I step on an airplane, when you step on an airplane, you cannot be psychologically certain that the pilots are sober, that there's not a terrorist on board, that there's nothing wrong with the airplane that's going to malfunction once it's in the air. You can't be psychologically certain of these things, but it's a pretty safe bet, so you're willing to take the risk. When you choose to have children, you can't be psychologically certain they're going to turn out okay, but you're willing to take the risk. When you change careers, you can't be psychologically certain that it's going to go well. It could be a nightmare, but if you have enough faith, you're willing to take the risk. Faith is acting in spite of the fact that you can't be certain of the thing you're acting about. And it's that way with all of our beliefs. If you believe that God exists, well, that's an act of faith. But likewise, if you believe God doesn't exist, that's also an act of faith. Because it just may turn out that he does and that there's a lot at stake here. Do you believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead and is Lord of all? Well, that's an act of faith. I believe it's a perfectly reasonable act of faith because you're going with the evidence. But likewise, if you believe Jesus isn't the risen Lord of all, that's also an act of faith because it just might turn out that he is. And it also just might turn out that if you looked at the evidence more carefully and thoroughly, you would be convinced of it as well. It all involves an act of faith, stepping out when you can't be certain of it. Now let me close with this. One thing here. There's a time to doubt, and I want you to hear me carefully. There's a time to doubt, and then there's a time to shut doubt off. There's a time to doubt, there's a time to shut doubt off. Well, Ryan, what are you talking about? Are you contradicting your sermon last week? No, I'm not. Jeez, back off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, let me, let me explain what I mean. To go back to the marriage analogy, and I think marriage is probably the most helpful analogy to help us with this matter of faith. When you're dating someone, that's the time to really explore some questions and ask questions and investigate any doubts you have. You need to be asking a lot of questions. Are we compatible? Can I trust this person's character? Are they honest? Is their faith genuine? The things that bug me about this person, are they deal breaker kinds of things? Or are they things I can learn to live with over time like we all do? Except for me, because I don't have any, there's nothing negative about my wife. Um, <laughs> but you need to be exploring these doubts and exploring these questions and, and, and do, perform due diligence on these kinds of things. Very important. But listen, once you step into this thing and you say, I do, it's time to turn that mode of thinking off because now 
it no longer does any good to live in the theoretical possibility of not being married. Why? Because now you're married to them. You've immersed yourself in this. There's no turning back now. So, so continuing to live in the theoretical possibility of not being married is just going to serve to erode the marriage. Does that make sense? Now, you're still going to have questions within marriage. Do they know how to fix a sink? Are they consistent at taking out the trash? Uh, do they know how to balance a checkbook? You can still have those kinds of questions, but now they're no longer deal breakers. Why? Because you bought the farm. And you're thoroughly invested in this thing now. So it's time to shut that way of thinking off. Couples who like perpetually do marriage with one foot out the divorce door the whole time, that sucks the life out of your marriage. There's a depth of love and intimacy and relationship that you can only experience once you're fully invested in this thing. I, I, I did a lot of marriage counseling in the past. Here, here at Village, we're blessed with a pastoral counselor who's, who does a fabulous job. But I used to do a lot of marriage counseling. And one of the things that I noticed with a lot of couples is when they would come in for counseling, as you begin to listen to how they talk, whether, whether I'm, I'm with one of them at a time or with both of them, when you listen to how they talk about the relationship, it occurred to me many times that this is a couple who's actually exercising faith that their marriage is not going to work. Because when they look into their future together, they only envision more pain, more negativity, more destruction, and they can't even imagine and visualize what it would be like to be in a healthy relationship together. They can't even see that possibility. And if you can't envision that, if the things that you're constantly running in your head, you're rehearsing all of the negativity and the pain in the past, and you can't envision a healthy future together in front of you, then you can't move in that direction. I cannot move into a trajectory that I can't visualize. Does that make sense? And see, that's what faith is like. Faith is about what direction. And see, in marriage, it always requires both people. One person's not enough. Both people have to be moving together in the same trajectory. But it's about what trajectory, what direction are we moving, which is based upon the question, what am I constantly running in my head? What am I constantly thinking about? And it's that way with Jesus Christ. If I'm constantly living in my doubts and in my questions, think, oh, no, well, what about this, though? Okay, well, well, well i got to find something else. What about this? If I'm constantly in that mode of thinking, then it's impossible for me to move forward. And this is what happens with a lot of people is they get addicted to their doubt, and they actually nurse their doubts. They do everything they can to keep their doubts alive because it's not actually an intellectual issue at its core. It's a heart issue. It's like, it's like when Jesus was encountering some of his opponents in Mark 2, N.T. Wright translates Jesus' words like this. He looks at the Pharisees and he says, why do your hearts tell you to think that? It's a heart issue. If I can just keep my doubts alive and nurse my doubts and keep grabbing onto that kind of stuff, then I can justify to myself keeping God at arm's length. So listen, there's a time to doubt, and maybe you're there right now. Maybe you have some real honest doubts 
And that's okay to have doubts. I, I, I talked with somebody recently who has serious doubts about Christ and the Bible. They're, they don't attend here at all. But, um, but sometimes people, that's where they are. And God gives us space and time to, to explore those doubts. And it's okay to do that. And if you need somebody to talk to you, I'm, I'm here. And, and I've got plenty of resources that can help you. So there's a time to doubt. But listen, there's also a time to commit, to jump into this thing where, you know what, I have enough reason to believe Jesus is the risen Lord of all. And I have enough reason to believe that this is the most logical way to live and this is the best investment of my life to invest it in what Jesus is doing. And so I'm gonna jump in. There's a time to commit and jump in. And that doesn't mean you're not still gonna have questions. I have questions all the time as a pastor. I still have theological questions that I wrestle with. And I've been doing it since the day I was born, frankly. And, and, and i got to tell you, when I graduated from Bible college at 22 years old to the time where I'm now a pastor, uh, 41 years old, in that span of time, as I've explored questions and doubts, my theology's changed a whole lot. It looks a whole lot different, but my faith in Christ is the better for it. But you see, as I worked on those questions, as I worked on my doubts, the difference is now I'm working on those doubts and questions from the inside of the relationship rather than as a condition for getting into the relationship. And some of you, that's where you are right now. You've got enough evidence to say yes. You've got enough light. You've got enough. And I think the Holy Spirit would just say to you this morning, come on, jump in. Dive into what I'm doing. This is the best investment of your life to invest it in the kingdom of God. Get in the game. Put all your eggs in this basket and go for it. Because as I said, there's a depth of love and relationship and joy and peace and spiritual transformation you will only experience once you're fully invested in this thing. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.